Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan. My guest this week is Emily Jeffers of the Center for Biological Diversity. She and I are going to be discussing the Ninth Circuit's recent decision in Center for Biological Diversity versus Holland. Uh, In this case, the court decided that Fish and Wildlife's sudden complete about-face Uh, This was back in 2017 on whether the Pacific walrus is covered under the Endangered Species Act as either endangered or or threatened was not adequately supported in the decision that they issued. This this ends up being a very far-ranging conversation, though, which I had hoped it would because this is a really important case because it involves the biggest threat to all animals on the planet, including human animals. And so we kind of get into how difficult the walruses' lives have become since the ice has started to disappear from from what has been their traditional habitat. And also talk about the influence of the change in administrations on Endangered Species Act enforcement. And at the bottom, most fundamentally, how much can the Endangered Species Act really do to protect animals in the era of climate change? Is it an outmoded statute? So before we get to that interview, I'd like to take a moment to ask for your support for our henhouse which is, of course, the, the non-for-profit that produces the Animal Law Podcast, along with the Our Hen House Podcast. If you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. You can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year. You can make a one-time donation in any amount you wish. And if you can afford it right now, if you can't afford it right now, we, we totally understand. And one of the th- great things about being a supporter, I think, is knowing that you are also providing animal-friendly media to those who can't afford it right now. And we are ever so grateful for that. And of course, if you haven't yet done so, please check out the Our Hen House podcast. I co-host that along with Jasmine Singer. And we've had a bunch of great episodes recently. Uh, Episode 598 was with social justice activist and the founder of the Black Fetch Fest, Omowale Adawale. Episode 597 with direct action everywhere activist and animal rights scholar Nico Stubler who discusses the Liberation Pledge, and that is the pledge by which vegans commit to declining to share meals at tables where animals are being consumed. And I think this is a fascinating interview, and I think you'll be really interested to hear why Nico thinks it's not only good activism, it's actually a moral imperative. Episode 596 with Katie Cantrell and her amazing work with the Better Food Foundation, which is aimed at making plant-based the default choice when it comes to food service meals. And Dr. Tyson Lord-Gray, a food justice advocate who cares about justice for animals along with justice for people. And why not? Okay, let's get to this interview. Emily Jeffers is a staff attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity's Oceans Program. She graduated from the University of California Berkeley School of Law and received her bachelor's degree in biology from Yale University. Before joining the center, Emily served as a law clerk to the Honorable Gregory J. Hobbs Jr. of the Colorado Supreme Court and worked as a wildlife biologist in California and Idaho. And she will be joining me right after this. I want to tell you about an amazing service for anybody who's practicing animal law or interested in animal law. The Brooks Animal Law Digest is a premier free online publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on today's most important animal law and policy issues. Published weekly as a collaborative effort with Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program, the Digest is a Brooks Institute service to the animal protection community. It can be like having a full-time lawyer on your staff researching and reporting to you on U.S. current legal developments related to animal protection issues. 
This digest is a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the field of animal law, either as a high-level overview of weekly developments for those who are focused on specific work, but nevertheless want to stay aware of other actions, or as a jumping-off point for digging into a specific current issue in the field. Features include allowing you to compile updates by category, search by key terms, and each issue contains links to background materials that will orient the reader around that specific issue. There are weekly highlights as well as quarterly summaries. You can subscribe to the Brooks Animal Law Digest at thebrooksinstitute.org. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Emily. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. I'm excited to be talking about this case. Uh, a recent victory, which is, it's always nice to be talking about victories, though still a lot of things going on that are putting Pacific walruses in a lot of danger. Can you just, can we just start off by just setting the scene a little bit? Who are the Pacific walruses and where are they? And, and tell us a little bit about how they have lived their lives up until about 10, 20 years ago. Sure. So I think everyone knows what a walrus is. Uh, my three-year-old and my six-year-old are very familiar, but they live up in the Arctic. They use sea ice for a lot of their, what the science calls essential life functions. They mate on the sea ice. They nurse on the sea ice. They sort of follow the sea ice from the Bering Sea in the Arctic up to the Chukchi Sea as a conveyor belt. They, they stay on the ice and it brings them over their shallow feeding grounds because they dive down and feed on clams, they can't be out in very deep waters. So that's the walrus, and uh, they've lived, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years up in the Arctic without much uh, note. But as the sea ice keeps melting, they are having a harder and harder time staying close to their feeding grounds. And as the ice melts, they're forced to haul out on land where they are subject to predation by polar bears and also at risk of trampling in the event of a stampede. Can you talk a little bit more about hauling out? Is that a is is that a term used for other animals as well? I don't I'm not sure I'm familiar with it, but I can just imagine it. I had to figure it out at first. It's kind of like when they because they're so awkward on land. So they have to kind of or even on the ice probably. They're probably very facile in the water. They kind of have to haul themselves out of the water. Because uh, they're so yeah, big. it's not the it's not the most graceful thing I've ever seen. Um, walruses walking on land, they're very nimble in the water, but on land, you know, they're they're very large, and so they just kind of shuffle along. And so when they're hauled out on land, um, if they're very they're very prone to spooking by noises or predation, and and then they all try and get into the water at the same time, and oftentimes they they. Um, they crush babies and um, smaller females get crushed in the stampede to get back to the water. So the less ice there is, the less opportunity they have to do this kind of on their own, on their own ice flow with a lot of space. They all have to do it on the same more or less beach. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, the, the ice provides a really wonderful place for them to haul out to rest between foraging for food. It provides a place for the pups to nurse with their mothers and it keeps them safe from polar bears for the most part are safer and it keeps them over their feeding grounds and if they're all hauled out on the same beach for example then there's a big concentration of walruses in that area and then when they swim out to find food that area quickly becomes depleted but when they're more dispersed it's easier for them to find the clams that they like to eat. Yeah so it's pretty easy to see why 
walruses are in trouble. They're also hunted, is that correct? They are hunted, yeah. There's a subsistence hunt by Alaska natives. Okay, and and so that's kind of the factual setting. So let's just discuss the law a little bit. And unsurprisingly, one of the laws that's involved here is the Endangered Species Act, because you hear about this and you got to think, well, yeah, they're in trouble. Can you just review for us how an endangered and a threatened species is defined under the act? Yes. So an endangered species is a species that is in danger of extinction and a threatened species is a species that's in danger of becoming an endangered species in the foreseeable future. And this is the Fish and Wildlife Service, right? Mm -hmm. And what are the factors that they look at in deciding whether a species qualifies for protection under either of these definitions? Well, there's a five-factor test under the Endangered Species Act, and I don't have all the five factors off the top of my head, but one of them is um, the destruction of the species habitat. And in this case, that's the sea ice that the species uh, lives on. So that's the that's the main, te- well, obviously, that's the main topic going on here. Arctic is changing. That's the main one for the walrus, yes. The climate change is overwhelming, the, the, the largest threat to the Pacific yeah. walrus. So my understanding is that anyone can can request listing of an of a species and that you guys were the ones who did and that was a while back. When was that? We submitted our listing petition for the Pacific walrus in 2008. And you got a well, not a great response, but not a terrible response. Is that right? Not a terrible response. Yes, in 2011, the Fish and Wildlife Service found that the species warranted listing under the Endangered Species Act, but put it on the warranted but precluded list of candidate species. And these are species that the service has found warrant protection under the act because they are imperiled, but due to lack of resources, they sort of bump them lower in priority. So uh, this seems kind of insane to me. <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm not that familiar with this fact that, how, how many species does this happen to that they're submitted, the agency finds, yeah, they're, they're endangered or threatened, but we don't have the time right now or the money. Yes, that, it, it happens more than you might think. And, and, it, and as a matter of fact, that was the subject of a, a big settlement by the center and others about, oh, I don't know, I say 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago, that required the service to make final listing determinations for all these species that were languishing on the candidate list. Because there were, I, I, I want to say, over 100 species that the service um, had found warranted protections but weren't getting the protections they deserved. And so they were required as a result of the settlement to make a final determination by a date certain. And that's, Walrus was also one of those cases. And the service was uh, supposed to make a determination by 2016. Okay. They ended up being a little bit late in making their final determination in 2017. So that was a, a an overall case, but it, it affected it affected mm-hmm. the walrus. All right, before we leave, just the straight out, what's the law here? Can you just briefly explain what it means to be listed? What does the government have to do once a species is listed? Well, once a species is listed, there's a whole host of protections that come into play. One of them is critical habitat. As when a species is listed, the government also has to list a designate habitat that's critical to the protection and the survival and recovery of that species. And so it designates areas of land or or sea, as the case may be, where during a Section 7 consultation process, which is, I guess I should step back a minute, when a species is listed and then the government goes on to issue a permit to someone to do something or a license, 
the person doing that thing has to ensure that they're not going to um, adversely affect endangered species in the area. And likewise with critical habitat, they have to make sure that they're not going to adversely modify that critical habitat. So when a species has um, endangered species protections, anytime someone is doing something that requires a government, a federal permit or a license in that area, they have to make sure they're talking to the biologists and making sure it's not going to harm the species. I'm just throwing this out there, but I really want to get into it more. It Like it seems like the whole question of climate change adds a whole lot of complications to knowing what it is that you have to do. You know, what are we going to do? stop climate change. Right. So I do want to, I, I like I'm throwing that out there and I just want people to know we're going to get to that because that just seems like the overwhelmingly, I mean, this case is important in and of itself because of the walruses, but it's important for so many different reasons. Like what do we do when habitat is threatened by what we've done to the climate? But anyway, we will get to that. I just want to get further into the case a little bit. So the agency actually did this new assessment, right? Um, that was required and and it was troubling <laughs> to say the least. Can you talk about it? Yeah. So, so in 2011, they found, the Fish and Wildlife Service found that the walrus, because the sea ice was disappearing, the walrus warranted protections under the act. And then six years later, they came to a completely opposite conclusion they said that, well, the sea ice, yes, it is melting, but it's really too hard to say what's going to happen to the walrus. Maybe, they said maybe, and they didn't provide any evidence for this, maybe they'll just learn to live on land. Maybe they'll adapt to living on land. And it was a very short, terse, three-page finding that said the walrus doesn't warrant a protection under the act. You know, you, you, you think you've won sometimes, but... Uh... <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> right. And it was, um, you know, it was the opening days of the Trump administration. And I can't say that we were terribly surprised. We didn't have high expectations, but just the lack of evidence and the listing decision, it was it was pretty notable. And so we brought suit shortly after in the District of Alaska. And that's where that's where we are now. Right. I mean, we're not in the District of Alaska, but that's the lawsuit we're actually talking about. We finally got correct. Here. So first they decided that listing was warranted, but they were too mm -hmm. busy to do it. And then you pushed them and they said, listing wasn't, isn't warranted. <laughs> we, we made a mistake. Or, or in some ways, they kind of not necessarily said things got better, which is completely ridiculous when you're talking about climate, but that things weren't as dire as they had previously thought. So this lawsuit, what's the, what's the claim and, and under once, what statute are you suing or did you sue in the, in the District of Alaska? We had two main claims. The first was a administrative law claim under the Administrative Procedure Act. And that was when an agency changes, an agency is entitled to change its mind and put forth a new policy. But when it does so and does a 180 degree change from what it previously determined, it has to really explain the reasons why and explain why the factual findings it previously relied upon no longer apply. And it did not do so here. And so that was, we felt a pretty strong claim because the 2017 finding was very um, bare bones and didn't really give the reader a sense of, of why they came to its conclusion. And then our, our second claim was under the Endangered Species Act. And that claim was that the service didn't look at the best available science. They cherry picked 
from the record and coming to their conclusion. And um, they came to conclusions that weren't warranted by the evidence before them. One more thing, we also argued that their determination of the foreseeable future, which in 2011, they said the foreseeable future is 2100. And we're going to look at the impacts of sea ice decline out to 2100 and how that's going to affect the walrus. And then in 2017, they said, well, while we understand how sea ice is going to behave out to 2100, we're only going to look at how it's impacting the walrus up to 2060, because after that, things are just too uncertain. They claimed uncertainty for why they weren't looking beyond 2060. And we challenged that both upon a failure to explain why they made this change and also that it wasn't warranted under the law. And can you just go through the legal standard? I think it's FCC versus Fox sets out the the legal standard for for when an agent, not just Fish and Wildlife, but when a, when any agent changes a position at which you know obviously they did here, it was pretty much a one eighty. And there's a specific mm-hmm. standard, right? Yeah, the Supreme Court laid out a four part standard in FCC versus Fox, and let's see if I can remember them. The first is the agency has to acknowledge that they are changing position. The second is that they have to believe that their new position is better, which we didn't contest. The third is that they have to provide a rational explanation for their change, especially if it relies upon factual findings. Gosh, what's the fourth? That it's permissible, legally permissible? It's permissible under the law. And so in, in our case, we I have were it arguing... written down. That's why, because I, <laughs> I knew I was going to ask the question. <laughs> yes, that's right. So we argued that A, they didn't really acknowledge that they were changing their position. They didn't say, hey, this is a change from what we found in 2011. It was just a really short finding that didn't you know, acknowledge its past history. They didn't explain why the factual findings underlying the 2011 finding were no longer. Um, applicable and that it also wasn't allowed under the Endangered Species Act because they didn't rely upon the best available science. I particularly love that one, which you said you didn't contest, because how can you? Is that they believe that their new policy is better. Like, uh, I guess they do. I don't know. They're stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we didn't want to get into that. But if, if there's a failure to do any one of those four, then the new rule is unlawful. Yeah. And the the language is reasoned explanation. Is that right? They have to give a reasoned explanation for uh, Correct. Mm-hmm. for changing. So, okay, you're in Alaska already. This is, doesn't sound great to me. <laughs> Not that I have anything against Alaska, but uh, so what happened in the district court? Uh, we lost on all our claims in the district court. The court sort of cherry-picked through the, well, I wouldn't say cherry-picked. They they looked through the species status assessment, which is the scientific document that accompanies a listing determination. And they pulled out explanations that they felt might justify the new rule, whereas the the Fish and Wildlife Service didn't do that in the final rule. But at least this is what we thought in the Ninth Circuit agreed. They kind of did the work of the Fish and Wildlife Service in providing an explanation for why they changed their their position. It struck me that just as a matter of administrative law, we're making it even easier for agencies now because, you know, normally agencies just have to come up with some evidence to support their decision, which is a weak enough standard. But now they kind of don't. It's like the court will look and see if there's any evidence to explain their decision and then just say, okay, they had some evidence because it's in there. They don't even have to they don't even have to pick it out. It just seemed to me as a matter of administrative law, a really bad decision. 
Yeah, I agree. And there are some cases that make that point pretty explicitly that, you know, that the the court can't substitute for the agency, that the agency really has to, you know, provide this explanation. Hopefully that this case adds to that case law, but I think it is important for the reasons you state. We don't want the agencies to, to just get off the hook for, you know, doing their job. Yeah, I, it makes the agency's job remarkably easy if the court will find the reason they were right. All right, so let's get, um, you appeal to the Ninth Circuit, and as you've mentioned, there's no surprise here, you were successful. And um, mm-hmm. can you just kind of summarize what happened, and then maybe we'll get into a little bit more detail? Sure. The The judges, the panel, uh, we, we won, as you said, and we only got to the first claim. They found that we prevailed on our argument that the agency did not provide an adequate explanation for their change in position in violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. And so they remanded back to the agency to either provide a, a more robust explanation or as what I expect will happen is the agency is going to reevaluate its position and whether or not the walrus warrants protections. Yeah, I, I really want to talk about that, what your expectations are. But let's go back to the facts and go through the findings of the agency a little bit, because the facts here, uh, as in every case, are what really make it interesting. All right. You may have covered some of this, but the things I have jotted down, uh, the agency said that the prey near the haulouts is more abundant than they had previously expected. So there's enough food for walruses to survive with less sea ice. Is that one of the things they relied on? And did they have any evidence supporting that? I don't remember if the the Ninth Circuit went into the details of the science. As, as I recall, they really didn't want to wade into the scientific arguments, but that was certainly an argument they put forth in, in our briefing. And and our counter was that, well, there's one study that says perhaps there's more uh, prey in certain locations, but there are also numerous studies showing that the results, because of ocean acidification and what's that ha- what, what is happening to shelled animals that rely on calcium carbonate to form their shells, there's a big decline of mollusks in the Arctic Ocean. And, and the Bering and Chukchi Seas. In addition, even though there might be more prey than previously thought in these areas, uh, it doesn't negate the fact that there's going to be increased mortality events as a result of stampedes and polar bear predation and such. Some of the other things that they had put forth, include, uh, and forgive me if I'm going into the facts in a way that the court didn't, but I just kind of want to tie it up. They, they contended that... Um, Foraging distance isn't that big of a problem because the female walruses can travel further than they thought they could. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah, that was an interesting argument. That was, well, because there is a study that that shows, hey, look at these walruses are going farther than we originally thought they could or that they did. But the whole point of the study was to show, look, these walruses are going farther and, and at what cost they are using more energy, their reproductive success might be lower. This is not something that, that young calves can do. The service kind of cherry picks certain quotations out of that study to say simply, look, they're traveling farther, it's okay if they have to swim farther to get their prey because they're all concentrated on these haul, these terrestrial haulouts. And, and our response was, well, yes, but at what cost? Of course, they're trying to do everything they can to survive. But when push comes to shove, they're, you know, they're going to swim far distances. But what happens in 20, 30, 50, 100 years? 
Are they going to have uh, lower reproductive rates? Or is their body condition going to be such that they won't be able to have young? That's a crazy story. Like there was this evidence showing this is really bad. These walruses have to travel so far to survive. Uh, and they didn't used to because there was more ice. And they came back and said, well, see, they can travel really far, so it's fine. Yes, I wish I had the quote from that we used in our briefs and I think in the oral argument that they were using exactly the reasons why they said in 2011 that the walrus needs to be protected under the Endangered Species Act to then say, oh, look, they, they're doing fine. But we, say, we came back and said, no, that's exactly. They're not all dead. They're not all dead yet, so they must be fine. This is exactly why they need protections. Wow. So basically that kind of fit into into this overall kind of assumption that, well, the walruses can adapt. They're not, like I said, they're not all dead yet, but we've seen now that they can adapt to this this unbelievable monumental change in their habitat. Was that basically their overall assumption? I think that they said we, we haven't seen evidence we don't know. They said, we don't know. Maybe they will. And we said, there is no evidence that they can. There is no evidence that they can reproduce on land. That's never been documented in the scientific literature. That's just going on a, on a hope and a prayer. And that's not the standard that the Endangered Species Act requires. What about the hunting? Were there findings about whether the hunting is impacting their ability to survive? I mean, obviously, on the individual basis, it obviously is, but for the species. Um, in, 20, in 2011, the service found that subsistence hunting was of concern. And in 2017, they came back and said, well, subsistence hunting is actually not a concern because look at all these mitigation measures that are in place. And, you know, hunting, subsistence hunting really is not the primary threat to the Pacific walrus. So it's not something we focus on in the briefs. It's overwhelmingly sea ice loss. But we did, we did argue that the, the mechanisms that the service was using to justify their conclusion that hunting was no longer a threat, those were all voluntary mechanisms. And you can't rely upon voluntary mechanisms in ensuring that a threat is, does not pose, you know, it's not a threat to the species. So let me, uh, unless there's anything else specific that you want to, that you want to talk about, let me just sum up what I understand is going on here and what the court saw looking at the big picture, they cited to this longer assessment, but they didn't cite the studies relied on in doing the assessment or or they didn't even cite to the assessment in a way that that explained how they why they had changed their views. So that's a problem because the court says they have to spell it out. And they just cited to a sort of generic uncertainty about the future uh, and the future impacts of climate change on walruses, like changing the date from 2100 to 2060. Mm-hmm. And that's just all like, it's all to some extent speculative. We're talking about the future it has to be something somewhat speculative, but uh, you know, maybe they'll adapt. You never know, like who knows what will happen. And that's obviously can't be support for changing positions. It's not new information. It's just kind of a new attitude, which isn't very surprising talking about the change in administration. Um, so it seems to me remarkably sloppy. And I guess the question I'm leading up to, is this typical or was this remarkably sloppy? I, I would say it was remarkably sloppy. I have never seen a, a listing determination, a final finding that was quite so short and devoid of any references to the scientific literature. 
you know, we used the comparison in, in our briefing, you know, the 2011 finding was a 45-page document with hundreds of citations to the scientific literature to um, support all the points that they were making. And the 2017 finding was a three-page document that didn't have any citations to the scientific literature or really, you know, to explain why they were doing what they were doing. So I do think this was an aberration, um, but it, you know, ultimately it was one that allowed us to to claim a victory in this case because it was so, so sloppy. But even, you know, even, even if, you know, I don't think that the service is going to just come back with a better explanation for why the walrus doesn't warrant protection. I do think that there's going to be a, a new evaluation and then they'll come to the, the conclusion they came to in 2011. But even if they did, I think that the science is so clear in this case that we could bring another challenge uh, under the failure to use the best available science standard under the Endangered Species Act. And, and I would hope that we would prevail. And how much do you, I mean, you mentioned before that this was right at the beginning of the Trump administration. How much of this kind of back and forth on these decisions is because of the huge change in administrations? And now we're we're back in the other direction. Do you expect a new attitude from the agency? I hope that they listen to the scientists more. I, you know, it's hard to say, it's hard to read the tea leaves what will happen, but I do think that the science is very clear that the sea ice is disappearing and it's going to have very... Yeah, even, even I know that. Like, <laughs> everybody knows that. It's like everybody knows knowledge. that. I mean, the, the Ninth Circuit stated very clearly in the bearded seal case a few years ago that the best scientific evidence shows that Arctic sea ice is disappearing through 2100. Uh, I mean, it's just a very settled scientific fact. And I think that the, the science is also showing that walrus need that sea ice. There's no evidence in the record that shows that they're just going to magically start living on land. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. The court also mentioned there was dissension within the agency. Is that something they, that you, or it appeared from the assessment that there was dissension within the agency? Is that something you've run into? particularly during the Trump administration or ever, that, the, you know, the, the whole country is so deeply polarized about everything, certainly deeply polarized about the environment. Within the government, do you sense that kind of deep polarization? I haven't spoken to scientists directly, but I have heard through the grapevine that a lot of career scientists at the at the federal agencies are were very frustrated during that time because their recommendations were being overruled by political appointees. So I don't I don't think that this case was singular in that aspect. Yeah. yeah. Are you sensing anything better going on or is this just something that's going to continue to happen? I don't know. I don't know. I, I hope that it's better. I think that this this administration seems to prioritize um, science, at least more than the Trump administration. So you mentioned that it's going back. Do you have any role in that or is it just going back to the agency and you waiting to see mm -hmm. what they do? Well, you know, of course, we'll submit comment letters to make sure they have the best available science before them. We'll comb through the scientific literature and pull out all the things that we think are relevant to the walrus listing to make sure that the Fish and Wildlife Service sees it. But, you know, it's probably stuff that they already have. But that's probably the extent of our involvement. So this case obviously has a lot of implications beyond its particular facts. Though, you know, the walruses matter too, but it obviously, dealing with climate change is it's a huge, huge issue, and it's hard for the courts often to find their way in. And the whole discussion, like I just said, the whole discussion of, of whether we're losing the sea ice and whether that's a problem 
it just seems so naive. And like, what are we, what are we doing here, folks? Like, is this an emergency? Uh, is this really what we should be talking about? So one thing that was particularly troubling was how much the, the agency was kind of talking about certainty. Well, you know, like, we don't know what's going to happen. So what are we supposed mm-hmm, to do? Mm-hmm. That can't prevail. I mean, even if, I mean, we kind of do know what's going to happen. And even if we don't, we have to be kind of like cautious at this point. Do you think the Endangered Species Act is up to, or the agency or the courts, have you seen any sign that they're up to treating this issue with the gravitas it needs? Uh, well, so I'll address your question in two parts. I think regards to scientific uncertainty, that's something that the agencies often claim when they're trying not to do something. They'll just throw up their hands and say it's too uncertain. But the statute, the Endangered Species Act, does not require the best scientific data possible. It does not require absolute certainty. It requires the best scientific data available. So whatever we have available is what they have to follow in here. And in many other cases, the science is showing that climate change is going to have X, Y, and Z impact on the whitebark pine on the polar bear on the walrus and that's what you have to follow even though you know as of course there's going to be some uncertainty we don't know exactly how things are going to play out so that's one answer to your question the other is whether or not the endangered species act i think you're kind of hinting at whether the endangered species act is up for addressing climate change and that's something that you know, by itself, no, the Endangered Species Act is probably not the only tool that, (laughs) that's probably not the best tool (laughs) to address climate change, or, you know, that's not going to solve the problem. But I do think that it provides a level of protection for species while we are trying to sort out our greenhouse gases, where we're trying to bring emissions down. It gives them a level of protection insulation from outside forces to just survive in the meantime. So it's, it's so I, just kind of a stopgap and a hugely important one, but obviously more is needed. I think it's a stopgap. You know, there are very clever people out there who are trying to bring the federal agencies in line with what, you know, also, you know, the Endangered Species Act is a very powerfully worded statute and I think it's within the um, four corners of the act to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, because if that's what's harming a species, the act says you have to, you know, promote the survival and recovery of the species. And so in during these section seven consultations, it's within the act's power to say, well, you can't emit these greenhouse gases because it's going to harm these species. There was an opinion, a solicitor's opinion by Bernhardt many years ago that said that basically the Endangered Species Act, you can't use it for greenhouse gas emissions. And there's a polar bear uh, rule, a 4D rule that the service put out several years ago after this polar bear was listed that said, even though we're listing the polar bear and the polar bear's main threat is due to sea ice loss as a result of climate change, this can't be used to um, talk about greenhouse gas emissions. All these things that the I think the service recognizes the potential of the Endangered Species Act to address greenhouse gas emissions, but they're not they're not uh, willing to allow it to do so. So what's going to happen here, bringing it back to this case, say they are listed and you get everything you're asking for, what happens? Do we end the subsistence hunting? Is that the only thing that we can do to... No, I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of oil and gas development in the Arctic and we can make sure that 
those um, activities don't harm walruses by impinging on their critical habitat, or we don't have seismic testing in waters that they're going to be in. As, as ice melts in the Arctic, there's going to be a lot more shipping in that area. We have to make sure that those shipping lanes are protective of the species and they're not in their critical habitat. Can I just interrupt there and ask one question about, like with the shipping or the oil and gases, is that to avoid further, inter- it, it doesn't actually address the melting of the ice, does it? It just addresses further interruptions to the lives of these animals. Is that right? Correct. Although, I mean, you know, if, if you can stop an oil and gas extraction project, right. that's going to, you know, down the line, trickle down to fewer emissions. But but yeah, you're correct. This is mostly about just protecting their habitat as it is, not necessarily mm-hmm. stopping the ice from melting. And they're still going to end up having to do their haul-outs on, on land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and either they'll adapt or, or they won't, I guess. I imagine a lot of your uh, listeners have probably seen the footage from was it our planet the the David Attenborough series that where the walruses were all hauling out on this island in the Arctic and it was very steep and so the walruses kind of had to like climb over each other to get up to higher ground and then you know they lost their footing and and fell and died but that that's something that happens a lot in the Arctic because these islands out in the Arctic where the walruses haul out they're often very shallow or very narrow uh, they're not very deep beaches and very rocky shorelines yeah, I don't know where I was starting with that, but yeah. Well, it's still important to know. It's an important fact. And if people haven't seen that, it's a good way to try to experience what these animals are going through because it's so easy to talk about these things in the abstract um, and as species. And, you know, it's really shows like that remind you that each of them is an individual trying to live their life. It's a it's a heartbreaking show that that the footage that they have it's I mean unbelievable that they were able to capture it but yeah it really brings home the like this is not something that we have to worry about in 20 years this is happening now the ice is melting now and these walrus don't have anywhere to go Thank you it's really been a pleasure Thanks for having me it was a lot of fun I I enjoyed it as well Thanks so much for joining us this month on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. And I want to extend my heartfelt gratitude to Emily for sharing her thoughts and expertise with us. And I would also like to thank Jen Riley and Jared Gleckel for their help in producing this podcast. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this this episode, I think that you will enjoy them all. So if you're not already subscribed, please subscribe uh, on your favorite podcatcher. And if you could consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, uh, that would be amazing. And if you are able and uh, you could consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org, that would be even more amazing. Thank you so much for being here and uh, see you next month.